kissing people over there. Well, we want to welcome back everybody who was gone this weekend to the couples retreat. I thought it went really well. I had to come back early for this morning. Uh, in case you're interested, if you were at the couples retreat this morning, I was getting ready for my study. And I usually go over my study and uh, about a nine o'clock I get here and I was going over my study and about 945, the Lord just kind of impressed upon my heart to do the study that I did on Friday night. And so I kind of switched gears and, and did the, uh, the couple study that I did on Friday evening for this uh, morning service. And so um, if you want another couple study teaching, uh, it's at the, you can pick up the CD before you go out the door. Um, if you're going through First Thessalonians with us on Sunday morning, you didn't miss anything today, and so we're just going to continue to move forward. But I assume by the clapping, everybody that was there enjoyed themselves, and I was tremendously blessed. Ray Carter from Calvary Chapel Lake Havasu joined us and gave the teachings on Saturday morning. It was an encouragement. Sean and Teresa gave their testimony of what the Lord's done in their life on Friday, or on Saturday night. They'll be going to a different church. I never knew those things about them. It's kind of scary. No, it was it was a blessing to just see the tremendous work that, and I was even there for a lot of it, and uh, you know, with with them, and uh, just seeing all that the Lord's done in their lives, just kind of an uh, amazing thing. And so it was all good. And I pray that you were blessed, and look forward to what the Lord wants to do next year. Um, because I it takes four studies this week, Thursday night and Wednesday morning with the men and Sunday morning and then at the couples and all, um, I'm going to have Sal come and he's going to share the word with you and we'll just see what the Lord's spoken to Sal to speak to us about. Well, I'm not used to getting an introduction. Usually I'm, I'm up here and uh, making fun of how Sean or pastor's not here. And then I'm sitting back there, sitting with my wife, and kind of just getting into worship. And all of a sudden I feel a tap on my shoulder. I look up and it's pastor, and I figure, yes, he's going to do it himself. But no, he tells me, put on the wireless mic. And I'm going, what? I never, I'm, so I, I keep wanting to make sure it's there. But since you guys are paying attention, it, uh, I know it's there. Okay, today, um, the Lord has placed in my heart to share uh, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20, and uh, no guarantees that we're going to get through all of it, but I will get you guys out of here in a time pastor usually gets you guys out of here. I have chosen to call it the man in the tombs, and I have no idea why, but it, it is anyways. But let's get you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. I'll read verses 1 through 9 and start getting into the teaching. Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 1, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had, be, who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been 
pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. He cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, Come out of him. Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many of them. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about, well, how is... You know, how do I teach on this? How do I share? And I was thinking, no, I must be in the wrong spot. You know, the Lord is not placing it in my heart. And he says, no, you stay with that and you start. So the only thing that can come to my mind is my, I guess, background and training. So the first thing I look at, okay, I see there's an incident that took place. So whenever I reported on an incident, there were certain things that needed to be within the body of the report. What? Who? What? when, and where. Now, I may be forgetting one or two other ones, but there was always one that was so important for me, and that was why. Why? With that in mind, we've just read an incident that took place. And within the, that reading of the, the, uh, the Scriptures, we see four of the, of the requirements in this documentation. But we do not see the why. To me, the why, like I said, is the most important. Now, the one thing that I see real quick is that Matthew chapter 28 states that there was two men. And I'll read that. It says, When he had come to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Why the discrepancy? Yeah. Over the years I have found that if three people see an incident, you will get three versions of it. Now, without a doubt, there's nothing wrong with that because they're not lying to you. That's what they believe that they have seen. Now, the one thing that I find interesting is why... Did Mark, you know, because we, we understand that Peter was actually the one who was dictating to, to Mark to write the gospel. And I know for a fact Peter had an intricate part in the ministry of Christ. So I wonder why did he not choose, or by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put in that there was two men here, that only Matthew was the one. Well, we want to look at the contrast in the different gospels in regards to this. And the first one we've seen that the man had been de demon-possessed for a long time. We see that in Luke 8.27. We also see within this verse, these verses, and also in Luke, that the man wore no clothes and lived like a subhuman, like a wild animal. The man lived among the decaying and the dead, contrary to the Jewish law and human instinct. 
The man had supernatural strength. We see that he pulled chains apart and he broke shackles. The man was tormented and was self-destructing. Destructive. We see that because he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. And the man had an uncontrollable behavior. No one was able to tame him. Now, so I look at this and I wonder, why the discrepancies? Now, I hope I have the time to come back and, and say why I believe it's not in this portion of Scripture and it was only in Matthew. But I don't know. But today we're going to really concentrate on the Gospel of Mark. Okay? The first thing that we see is if we look at verse 1, verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side. Now the key thing for me in this verse is the word then. So what that tells me is in order to get a full understanding of what's going on, we must go back a little bit. Because something brought them to this situation. What had transpired? What were the things that took place that caused not just the situation to be revealed, but what brought them to this point? Now, we're going to look back, and the thing that we see is that that same day, Jesus had been teaching the masses. We see it in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 uh, through 21. It says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so as much eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they met, they went out to lay hold of him. That's hold of Jesus. For they said, he is out of his mind. Then we see, we continue seeing in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, it says, then his brothers, and remember, this is a continuation. Then, then his brothers and his mothers came to him standing outside, and they said to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. That's not the point. The point is, and again, so it's the continuation. And again, he began in verse uh, in chapter four, Mark four, verse one. It says, "And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on it in the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. So they were being taught. Then lastly, on Mark." Chapter 4, verse 10, it says, But when he was alone, this is so that you understand that it's not at this time, but when he was alone at another, in another place, the twelve asked him about the parables. So we see that he had been teaching, telling them about these parables, so that it all goes together. But if we look at verse, uh, if we go back one more time, now I stopped at uh, verse 10, but going back and recapping in Mark Four, chapter 4, verse 33 uh, through 41, and I'll read it quickly. When it says, let me make sure I got the right spot. 33. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And, and when they were all alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Now, in verse 35, it tells us, tells us, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, 
they took him along in the boat as he was, and, in, and the other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are going to perish? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the seas obey him? Verse 35 tells us specifically the same day. So now, I've read these portions, and I know I'm massacring and going really quick because there's a lot so much in it that I, that I want to share with you guys. So um, the disciples just went through a very long day of teaching. And what I want you to think about is those of you that have been to a retreat, uh, whether it's a couple's retreat or, or just a single women's or uh, men's retreat, you know how long they are, even though they're really fun. But at the end of the day, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Then the next thing I want you to see is they were at the point of thinking they were going to die. The boat, they thought they were going to drown, right? Okay. Then the next thing is they see that Jesus quiets the raging wind and sea. And here's what it is. Instead of them getting more peace, they were even more fearful. And the thing that I find interesting about that is now... Now they come to the other side. And we see that in verse 1. They came to the other side. But put, put yourself in their mind. All the time I have gone through these passages, I've always focused on certain things. Now, I'm talking about the passages in, in Mark 5, 1 through 20, but I've only read 1 through 9. Is The first thing I think of is when I look at these passages, I think of Jesus. And, you know, we need to. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to get you to focus in on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his love and his grace. However, I would think every once in a while about the man or the men in the tombs. Sometimes I would think about the people in the area. Sad to say, I was always thinking a lot about the pigs. So when I was looking at this, I have never taken a moment to think about the disciples. The disciples. And the reason I say that, that, that brings that brings a shame to me because I've never really thought of them. I've always focused in on everything else that's going around. I never thought about these disciples that are sitting there with Jesus and everything that has already transpired, they come across to the other side and all of a sudden, bam, they're hit by an evil spirit. They're hit by opposition. They're hit with a trial that I believe they hadn't seen before. That that brings me to the why. That brings me to the point of asking why. Why is Jesus there? Who has Jesus come to meet? What does Jesus want to accomplish on this side? 
And when is the right time for Jesus to be there? And last is, where does Jesus want to go with this? What is he, where is he going to go from here? So, basically, I kind of just laid that out there so that you guys can be thinking, as I'm teaching, as I'm sharing this with you, I want you to be thinking of everything that transpired. I want you to be thinking of the exhaustion. I want you to be thinking of the fear. I want you to be thinking of perhaps not wanting to do anything because I already had a rough day. I've already gone through too much. I look around here and and I see faithful people here sitting here listening to the Word. And I guarantee you that 90% of you are tired. The people that are not here, and we're not talking bad about them, but I'm just showing you the example. Even though you're tired, you're still here. So I want you to think about that, that they were tired, but they were there. They were there. So the first thing that I look at is going back to verse 1 in chapter 5. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. On the other side. Where is the other side? Is there a place that you don't go to because it's the other side? Is there a place that you stay away from because of the opposition? Because it tells us in, in, in other Gospels that no one can get through. Is there a place that you have in your life that you feel that you cannot go through? So you avoid it. Or even scarier. Not location, but people. Is there a family or friends who you think are so far gone that Jesus can't save anymore? Because I can tell you right now, if, if I knew about this guy, and I was one of the disciples in one of the boats that almost sank, that I just seen the, this man who I really don't know who he is now, because I'm saying, who is this guy that can calm the seas and tell the wind something and the wind be obedient? And then all of a sudden, he just does this miraculous thing, and I'm even more scared, because that's what it says. They were exceedingly fearful. I don't know exactly what was going through their minds, but I know what has gone through my mind. And the first thing I say, there is family. There is friends. There is a place I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the other side. I want to avoid it. Why? So that I don't see what, I, what God wants me to show, what God wants to show me. But here's the thing. How dare we, or better yet, how dare we think so much better of ourselves than of that, them people? Now, let me explain what I mean. When we come to the point that the Lord cannot save them, we've come to the point that we have placed ourselves above them. No way, Sal. How, what do you mean? Well, Jesus saved me, so I must be better than that person. I listened to the Lord. I begged for forgiveness. Well, so can anybody else. I had a, a brother ask me this morning, he says, he says, 
I know that the Lord knows everything. So he knows whether God is, God knows whether this person is going to choose to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or not. So how do I pray? And I, and I, you know the only thing I can think of? I said, how do you know that it's not him who God's trying to work on, but it's actually you? And this person is going to recognize and see the goodness of God, because the Bible tells us it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. This person is going to see that even though they're the way they are, that you're still praying for them, that you're still kind to them, that you're still chasing them with your love. So imagine how much more God is chasing him. So I look at that, and and that actually brings fear into my heart. Verse 2 tells us, it says, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Yes, when you get uh, when you get to the other side, there is the enemy is already waiting for you. I know I built this big thing up in the previous verse to get you to go, but now I'm letting you know that the opposition is there. The enemy is waiting. When the Allied forces in World War II hit Normandy, they knew what was waiting for them. They knew, and they were prepared. And by the grace of God, they conquered the disciples needed to recognize that they were not alone. So if they were not alone, that means you're never going to be alone. No matter what side you go to, no matter what location, no matter who your opposition is, you are not alone. We see it physically there that Jesus was with them. And the most beautiful part about this that just blows my mind They never do anything. In this whole passage, we will see that they never say anything, according to what I read in the Bible. They never made the effort of trying to do anything. It was all the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing about it. It says, the man did not go out looking for Jesus. We know that. Even though he's seen him from afar, and he ran to him, But see, the interesting thing is, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll be reading starting in verse 10. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 10. And it says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And here's the interesting. Their throat is like an open tomb. With their tongue they have have practiced deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are under their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. 
we could actually, and, and I didn't do it, and I thought about it, but I just didn't think I had enough time, but I could actually just take portions of those scriptures and just compare them. Compare them to the man or the men at the tombs and just see it. But I don't really want to go there. Now we're going to get to see Jesus' heart. The God of this universe went looking for Him. I don't know how to explain that it's, you know, all the things that transpired. But I know that Jesus went over there. He chose to go to the other side. He had what I believe was a divine appointment, not with legion. And see, that's the interesting thing. We're never told the name of that man or the men. We're only told the name of the, the unclean spirits, if you will. Let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and I'll read through 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city, this is speaking of Jesus, and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, your children within you, to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's when Jesus was crying over Jerusalem. And mind you, I just want to make sure you understand, Jesus is weeping over this, over Jerusalem on this hill. But look at what Peter, and I don't, can't turn, but anyways, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12 tells us, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, remember the other side? The friends and family? Not the other side here, but the other side in your life. Is your conduct reflecting 2 Peter 11 and 12? And see, that's the interesting thing that the Lord is teaching me because I'll be honest with you. I've been very rude to my family. I've been very blunt Sometimes I do it to be funny. Sometimes I do it just because I'm tired. Sometimes I do it just to be mean. And see, that's the sad thing, is that I do not know when their day of visitation is. You don't know what or when their day of visitation is. Now understand, the day of visitation is when they're presented with the gospel and they make the decision to accept Jesus Christ as, your Lord, as their Lord and Savior. Now, Peter tells us that our conduct will glorify God 
on the day of their visitation. And see, here's the interesting thing that I thought about. My family is predominantly Catholic. And because they're Catholic, they have, you know, the Catholic ways of doing things. You know, they won't eat meat on Friday, but they'll go party on Saturday. Okay? And that's the truth. Now, I can sit there and I could really tell them, what a bunch of hypocrites you guys are. Here, you're going to McDonald's and waiting in line for an hour just to get a fish fillet. And then on Saturday, no, the reason I know this is because on Friday night, we went to have dinner at In-N-Out. There was no line. There was no line. So I'm telling you, there was a lot of Catholics that live around the area on Friday night. But anyways, that's, that's neither here nor there. Okay. Stop it. Stop it. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is this, is that if I conduct myself in a God-fearing, loving way, the day they choose Jesus Christ is the day they're going to glorify God because of my conduct. And how do I know this for a fact? I was in the Marine Corps, and there was this, this one gentleman, and I don't remember his name, but his name's not important. It was his witness. He would pray every day. He would witness. He had really good conduct and good behavior. When I came to the Lord, the Lord reminded me of him. And the first thing I thought of is, ah, all those times that I was capping on him, making jokes about him, teasing him, and all he would do was smile and laugh. So I thought, you know what? Now I have a good picture of what the day of visitation is. Because I have a personal, a personal way of touching my heart. Because I remember, I made fun of him. He was a lot bigger than me too, so I'm glad he never got mad because he would have stomped me into the ground. But that was it. Now I had the opportunity to be able to see that. Verses 3 and 4, as we continue, 3 and 4. Speaking of the man who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Here, the way I like looking at this is a glimpse of how the world tries to fix something. Okay? Something that only Jesus can fix. Throughout the years, I would refer a lot of people to drug programs. I would take people to other places. I would, I would lock them up in jail. It didn't matter. However, I've actually done it not in my job, but within my home. I've tried to change people by trying to change the rules. By planning with programs. And the worst of one, with threats. And none of them work. None of them work. So I can tell you right now, don't bother. Show them the love of Christ. Don't compromise your beliefs. But love them. 
Now, I mind you, if it's your seven-year-old kid who's doing things, no, you, you, have to, you have to deal with that to make sure it's age-appropriate. If you have a 21-year-old son, or if you have a 30-year-old son, or you have a daughter who's 45 or whatever, it doesn't matter. Those are the ones that you're not going to fix. They're just going to rebel even more. Here the people tried everything they could that they could think of. They chained him. They shackled him. I believe they even tried pop psychology, whatever pop psychology was back then. I know I tried it. I'll sit there. I have a guy who's you know, doing what he's not supposed to be doing. And the world tells me or my job tells me, talk to him. Try to figure out as you counsel him Make sure you ask him questions that are not answered with a yes and a no. Get him to get deep in a conversation. Well, let me tell you, I got in trouble for not doing that. I straight out told someone at work, you know what, you need Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to change because what you're doing is wrong according to the Word of God. Well, I got called into the administrator's office and I was instructed and told I cannot say that. Okay, I won't say that. Next counseling session I had with him, I said, you know what you're doing? The world does not think it's a good thing. You're not going to get nowhere. It is in society, and you're just destroying your life. Well, I told him that because I wanted to get even because he was the one that turned me in. He turned me in. He really did. He, he wrote me up, and luckily they squashed it at that level. They, it didn't go into my personnel file. But I got in trouble for it, so I figured I can stick them one more time and they can't get nothing because everything I say is according to the manual. Well, when he was leaving the facility, he got my attention, and I don't know how the Lord orchestrated this to happen. And he yells, Flores, Flores, Flores. And I go, oh, no, he's leaving, and now he can say anything he wants. He goes, I accepted Jesus. I accepted Jesus. And I'm like, Whoa, you know. And see, that tells me that no matter how much I fail, just like the people before trying to put chains and shackles and trying to tame someone according to my version of how I'm supposed to do it, if I just stand back, because that's what the disciples were doing, they weren't doing nothing than just standing there and allowing the Lord to do all the work. Verse 5. Here we see, it says, and, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. Here we see the result of his demon possession. But it's not just demon possession, because here's the thing. It tormented his mind. There was no rest for him. He was homeless. And it was destroying him physically. Now, specifically the Word of God is telling us that he was demon-possessed, and it even tells us that there was a whole bunch of demons in there. Can I use those four examples with alcoholism? Alcohol, it destroys your mind. You have no rest. Sometimes you become homeless, and it destroys you physically. Can you use it with drugs? Can you use it with pornography? Can you use it with cheating on your wife or your husband? Can you use it by 
committing stealing. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. So the point that you think, because I don't do this, you're actually thinking better of yourself than you ought to. And that is the one thing that the Lord is, is instilling in my heart through this. Yes, this man was demon-possessed, but the rest of the world is possessed by sin. And they're being destroyed by it. So our behavior is very important because that's what's going to point them to Christ. That's what's going to cause them to look at Him, not at us. I ran out of chains. I ran out of handcuffs. I ran out of tasers. I ran out of guns, bullets. Oh, pepper spray. I forgot. The, I, I like pepper spray. But anyways, I ran out of pepper spray because I finally gave that up. And I started dealing with people with the love of Christ. And when I started doing it with a right heart, I never got in trouble. <laughs> Let me tell you, I did not get in trouble. So that's what I find so interesting. Moving on to verse 6 and 7, it says, But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, the NIV, the NIV tells us, tells us that he fell down before Jesus. This one says, which is the New King James, uh, I'm not trying to tell you anything about your Bible, I personally like the New King James. Okay? And we go round and round in our small group, but you know what, NIV is a good Bible. I thought, no. And actually, in this case, the NIV is a better translation. And the reason why is because in the New King James, it says he ran and worshipped him. In the NIV, it says, it tells us that he fell down before Jesus. Now, before I get to the punchline in regards to this, I wonder if he had a choice. Now, I'm talking about the demon-possessed man. If he had a choice, what would he have done? Would he have bowed to the ground? Well, let me take you to Philippians 2, 9, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has, has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He had no choice. He had no choice but to bow down before the God of this universe, the Almighty, the Savior of the world, and see, just like that demon-possessed man, we have to do the same thing. We have to recognize that it's his authority and his authority alone. It's his job and his job alone. It's his power and his power alone. And it's his glory and his glory alone. And see, if we keep that in the forefront of our mind, then we'll wonder. Because I kind of, I was like, well, did he worship him? Did he not? And then if he really worshipped him, why did Christ speak to him so harsh? Well, I, I looked it up in some of the commentaries. And it actually, one commentary spoke about how Jesus would not accept worship from demons. He would not. Now, that's interesting. Biblically, I can't support that, but it makes sense. 
It really makes sense. Verse 8 and 9. It says, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, My name is Legion, for there are many of them. Now, here's the interesting thing here. Jesus speaks, and I find a few things interesting. The first thing is that Jesus commands him to come out. He commands him to come out. Okay? But the unclean spirit doesn't. It sits there and starts talking to him. And forgive me if I make it sound kind of weird, and then Jesus has a conversation, if you will. He goes on to say, what is your name? With one word, the Lord Jesus made the heavens and the earth. Here's the most important point within this section. I think Jesus did this to show who was behind the sin. Now, let me kind of build on that, if you will. Here is God Almighty telling, commanding the unclean spirit to come out. The only way that spirit would sit there and have a conversation or start talking is because Christ allowed him to do that. Now, here's the question. Why would Christ allow him to do that? And this is what I believe. I believe that we as a people need to see what truly is behind the sin that overtakes us. The sin that keeps us chained up. The sin that keeps dragging us down to the ground and keeps causing us to go back to the mire. Here we see that Jesus gave him the opportunity to remain and to speak and to say, my name is Legion. Now the commentaries say that the reason he chose that name is because there was many of them that he didn't give them the opportunity for each one to say their name. He just allowed one. And see, this is the whole thing. Jesus allowed one to speak for all of them. And he only allowed him to say legion, which means many. Now, if you really think about that, the Lord wants us to know what is behind the sin. For us, it's easy. It's the world. It's the flesh. And it's the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. If we recognize that that's what's behind it, and if we recognize that in front of it, because here we have the picture, and controlling it, even though somebody will look at it and say, hey, that guy held his ground for a little bit. No. That guy was permitted to hold that ground for just a little bit more so that we, so that the disciples, because remember, the guys are still speechless. Those, those guys that came, that showed up with them, they haven't said nothing, they haven't did anything, they're just standing there. They see this man run up, they see Christ confront him, they, this guy falls down. They're seeing things. But the Lord, I believe the Lord wants them, wants me, wants us to know that we recognize what's causing the sin. And in this case, we see what's causing this sin or this situation is the demon possession. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3 says, 
in which once in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the practice of the power of the air, the spirit who works now in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were all once conducting ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we by nature were children of wrath just like everybody else. And that's the thing, that we that I always look at and need to remember that I'm no better. I'm no better. I'm different now. I really am. I'm sanctified, but I'm no better. And I thank God that that was the lesson he taught me a long time ago. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us, And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now, I kind of like that that verse. And the reason why is this, not send him out of the country. Well, I thought demons had the power, the ability to go anywhere they want, right? You know, I thought. They were afraid that they were going to get sent to the abyss. Another, I don't, don't know of this one, but another version says that the abyss. Well, the abyss is, is where, you know, their final, their final resting place, if you will, but there's no rest. But what I like to kind of look at and see is that they maintained a geographical location. How do you get that? Well, he stayed in the mountains and in the tombs. He didn't go anywhere else. Why? I don't know why. It's kind of like, I'm not knocking you salesmen, but it's kind of like you salesmen. You guys stay in a specific area, right? And you're not allowed to go anywhere else unless you go poaching, which you're not supposed to. So I, I kind of look at that even though these guys or these demons, this legion, has all this power, has all this ability, he was still being confined. He was set in that little area that he couldn't do anything until Christ came and dealt with him. It's kind of like, kind of like, uh, well, those of you that are parents or grandparents, you have a little child who's kind of messing up, and you say, okay, I'm going to give him another minute. Maybe he'll change. I'm going to give him another 10, 15 minutes. Maybe he'll change. But sooner or later, you go and you deal with him. You have to. That's all there is to it. And that's what I see this picture here, how the Lord had that for this specific reason so that, what, 2,015 years later, I could come and share that with you guys. So just think about that. That's how good God is, so that I would have something to say about verse 10. Never mind, you guys are falling asleep on me. Verse 11 through 14, and it says, Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains, and all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirit went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, interesting thing here, it says, not sure what really is going on here, but a lot of people say, why did Jesus destroy the pigs? They were his creation. Well, I, I really don't know. Well, first of all, here's a few things that I found that I found really interesting. They're not my ideas. And the first thing you'll notice is that the English is really proper the way it's written. So right away, you know I didn't write it. It says, number one, it says, 
as Lord of all, God has the right to make use of His creation in any way that He deems best. And this includes not only pigs, but people. Pork was a, a food forbidden to the Jews, and as such, those who raised these pigs may have done so knowingly in violation of the divine instructions. It is in no way certain, however, that these pig raisers were Jews. Not sure about that. It's in the Decapolis area, and I went through the maps, and, and I thought, and I thought, you know what? There is a 75% chance that they were Jewish. But there's also a 25% chance that there weren't. Three, our Lord has moved with our Lord was moved with compassion by the torment of legion and the loss of these pigs should in no way dim your view of the deliverance. Okay, wait. Your de the deliverance of the demonic. Also, the wholesale slaughter of pigs dramatically illustrated the destructive purpose of demons. And here's the, here's the point. Here's the killer for this one. It says, Our Lord did not command the demons to enter the pigs and bring about their destruction. He only permitted it. So that was real important to me. And lastly, it says, what our Lord could have given the people of this territory was much greater than what he took away. And that's the thing. He took away 2,000 pigs, but he could have given them so much more. It says, and then one little thing that I put down in terrible English, it says, who are we to question the Lord? Now, of course, this specifically is talking about pigs. Is there anything in your life that the Lord has taken away that you're mad at Him? And, I, and I'm not talking about humans, loved ones. I'm talking about things, things, maybe even a pet, but a job, a car. You know, Lord, I've been doing everything I can and now I got fired. Well, I, I don't have an answer for the herdsmen or the pig owners or anything or for you guys in regards to the job, in regards to a boyfriend, a girlfriend. You know, All I can tell you is that he knows what's best. And here's the best part about it. Whatever he takes away, he has so much greater to give to you. I... I I know that for a fact, that he will never take away more than what he gives to you. And see, that's what I find really interesting. Okay. And here's something interesting that, that uh, commentary wrote at the, at the last portion. It says, let us not end the note of death of the pigs, but on the deliverance of the demonic. Whereas he had been a slave, he is now delivered from the demon possession. While he was once wild and uncontrollable, he was now sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus. When once he was an instrument of satanic opposition against the Messiah, now he is a witness of his power. Once naked, he is now clothed. Once a menace to society, now a messenger of the world of the words of deliverance for of healing. Now you're probably saying, where'd you get all that? Well. I kind of want to put it in there because I 
didn't know how to cut and paste it in the right spot, so I just put it in there because I had room. And then just remember that when we get to the next five verses. And verse 15, moving on, it says, verse 15, And then they came to Jesus and saw, and saw one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting there clothed and in, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The, now, I kind of expressed all those things in the previous, previous paragraph, but the one thing that the Lord spoke to me is that there must be an outward change. There must be an outward change. When, when you came to the Lord and He changed your heart, and we'll kind of look at that in a, in a little while, but immediately there was an outward change with this man. Now, I, I couldn't figure out how much time it was from the time that Jesus landed on the boat till the time when he was sitting there teaching him. But whatever it was, it was enough time for this guy to get clothed. And I imagine he's probably clean and washed, but minimum he went and got dressed. Now, I, I don't know where he got the clothes because I'm sure there wasn't a Walmart just around the corner from there. Most likely what it was, and, and this is conjecture on my part, that probably one of the disciples gave him their cloak. And who knows? And, I, and I'm not saying that this is what happened, but what if Jesus was the one that gave him his own you know, garment? And, you know, and, and that's what blows my mind. Because in reality, he was. You who are saved, you who are now in your right mind, you who are sitting at the feet of Jesus, you are clothed by the garment of the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing. So are we displaying the outward change that we should? You know, I remember uh, uh, Pastor David, uh, back when I was at another church, one time he said that he, that he had heard him. I don't know if he read it or he heard it. But he says, yeah, I remember that someone said something about there was this one guy who was a gangster. He was a straight gangster. And he came to the Lord. And they went back and they seen him a little bit later and he was still doing the things that gangsters do. And they asked him, wait a second, what's going on? Why are you still doing that? And he says, well, there's Christian plumbers. There's Christian carpenters, Christian truck drivers. I'm a Christian gangster. It doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't work that way. If it's against the Word of God, you need to change it. You need to stop it. You need to run away from it. Now, here's the thing. Yes, it is for your good. But how much more good it does for the people who see you. Think about that. That is an awesome witness, even without you saying anything. And see, that's what I find so awesome, that when God gets a hold of someone, there's always an outward change. And that's what takes place, and that's what people see, and that's how God gets glorified. Verses 16 and 17 says, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart the region. Now, the work of Jesus is told by these guys. They went and told them what Jesus had done. However, they were going to react differently. 
It all comes down to the condition of the heart. Whenever you share the gospel with someone, or whenever someone sees the work of God, there's always going to be a different, a different reaction. We don't know, and we shouldn't judge people on their reaction. You know, I know that we want, as soon as we share the first time with someone, we want them to come to the Lord and just think that we're the next Greg Laurie or Billy Graham or something. It doesn't work that way. The Bible specifically tells us that seeds are planted, somebody else waters, but who gets the harvest? The Lord gets the harvest. And that's the key. So the thing is, here, these people are talking about the, the work that Jesus had done, and what do they say? They Oh, glory to God on the highest. Stay with us a little bit longer. What do they say? Will you please leave? Get out of here. We don't want you. Leave our area. Those who belong to Jesus will glorify God. Those who don't, won't. That's all there is to it. Now, it says that there was it says that they were afraid. Now, fear, fear is not a bad thing if it draws you to the Lord. However, there's plenty of scriptures that tell us that perfect love casts out all fear. Now, we also told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's when you, what is your reaction or what is the outcome of that fear? Is that fear drawing you to the Lord? Or is that fear causing you to run away? Only your heart can reveal that and prayerfully the Lord. Verse 18, verse 18 says, And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might go with him. Now here is what I really love about this portion. And I've said that four times, but don't, don't mind me. It says, We've we seen the outward change in verse 15. We've we seen that. We've seen the outward change. And I told you that it's necessary. And truly, I, I want you guys to, to understand how the importance of that. However, the change that is apparent within you, the inward change, is when you desire to be with Jesus more. To be at the feet of the Lord that change will be apparent by how much time you spend with the Lord. And see, here's the interesting thing about it. No one could really tell you how much time you're spending with the Lord. Why? Because they don't know if that while you're whistling while you work, you might be actually meditating on the Lord. You might be praying. Just because they see you only come to church once a week, twice a week, three times a week, they cannot gauge how much time you spend with the Lord. That is that outward appearance. However, I warn you that there is a way to give a false outward appearance. It's the condition of the heart. It's the desire to be at the feet of Jesus. It's the desire to receive His Word. It's the desire to worship Him. And you don't need to be at church to do that. Church is really good. Now, I'm not trying to get you guys to stay home more. And No, I want you guys to come to church. You know, I want you guys to be here because the fellowship that is necessary, the, the partaking of the Word as Pastor teaches us, it's mandatory for us, for us to grow. But see, you yourself know 
how much personal time you're spending with the Lord. And that's the inward appearance and the inward change that I'm talking about. Verse 19 tells us, However, Jesus did not permit him and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had had compassion for you. Here we go. Then the ministry begins for this man. After sitting at the feet of Jesus, he goes out and starts speaking of his work. This verse also breaks my heart because Jesus tells him to go home and to his friends. And see, it scares me. And the reason why is because what about his family? Why didn't he tell him to go and tell his friends and family? I don't know. But it causes me to think, am I going to wait till it's too late to tell my family? Am I going to fail to give them the opportunity to hear from me the great things that God has done in my life? I hope not. And verse 20 tells us, And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and they all marveled. The work of ministry began. The actual going out and talking and sharing. He may not have been Billy Graham. He may have not have been Greg Laurie. And I sure hope he wasn't Sal. But he was a man who took what God gave him and went out. And I'm going to leave you with one more verse and just share a few things about it and get out of here because I'm already past my time. Romans 10.15 tells us how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of everything. The feet of that man prior to Jesus' arrival, we would never want to see. And yet, the Bible tells us how beautiful his feet were when he started preaching the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and I thank you for your word, and I pray that your spirit just moves mightily. And Lord, let your words penetrate our hearts and let your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.